Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show is a special episode that attempts to take Hemingway at his own premise. We will be asking our guest a very simple question, what her choice is for Hemingway's one true sentence, and then as Hemingway writes, go on from there. Through learning the one true sentence of our guest, we learn more about the sentence, we learn more about our guest, we learn more about Hemingway, we learn more about literature and art and life. Well, joining us today to play One True Sentence is Gail Sinclair. Gail Sinclair is former executive director and scholar in residence of the Winter Park Institute at Rollins College. Her several publications include books on Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Edith Wharton. Uh, Gail is currently the vice president and treasurer of the Hemingway Society. Uh, Gail, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's truly an honor to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. You heard the explanation of our game where we uh, talk about Hemingway and the notion of one true sentence. So what is your one true sentence for us today? Well, first of all, I have to say I love the idea of one true podcast. What a great name and what a great idea. And uh, how fun this is, this, this one true sentence. Although, wow, it was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, so, you want my one true sentence? Um, and I have a whole long explanation and apology and so forth, but, but I will start with, with the one true sentence. Uh, this comes from chapter one of A Farewell to Arms, the third paragraph from the end. There were mists over the river and clouds on the mountain, and the trucks splashed mud on the road, and the troops were muddy and wet in their capes. Their rifles were wet, and under their capes, the two leather cartridge boxes on the front of the belts, gray leather boxes heavy with packs of clips of thin, long 6.5 millimeter cartridges bulged forward under the capes so that the men passing on the road marched as though they were six months gone with child. Oh, that's tremendous. So what of all the sentences, why does that stand out? What does that tell you about what does that tell us about Hemingway? Well, again, such a difficult job choosing a, a sentence. And, and um, as, as I will explain, there is, there, it's a, there's a semicolon in there, so it's kind of fudging a bit. But um, this sentence, when you ask me if I would be willing to, do, to play this, this game, um, this is the sentence that first came to mind. And, and what's interesting to me, because I've, I've used this sentence when I teach a farewell to arms, uh, this is a sentence that I really begin conversation of the novel and how much is really in this sentence. You get so much before you get um, more than a few paragraphs into, uh, into the novel. Um, so it, it's a sentence that lays the ground work for the rest of the novel. It sets the imagery and the mood and the tone 
and um, it, it just has all of this, so much that emanates from it. Uh, when I am presented with with this sentence, I think that having read the entire novel uh, before, I'm like, well, we're going to remember this when we read the Caporetto section, and we're going to remember this with the childbirth sentence uh, section at the end. Right. So it is all the major movements are sort of collapsed into that sentence. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Exactly. You know, if once you once you know the novel, you've read all the way to the end and you come back and look at this sentence, you you see that the, the kernel is there, that, yeah. that it is the sentence that really foreshadows everything. And, and to, to sort of take a, 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 go off on a little tangent, I was reminded of um, Silver Linings Playbook, the movie with Bradley Cooper. And he, you're, I think you're smiling because you, you know um, this, this scene. And, and if people don't know the scene, you have to watch the movie just for the scene. But he reads, he reads a farewell to arms and he reads it from front to back nonstop. It looks like at least. And, and then he throws the book out the window and he's so upset and he runs into his parents' bedroom to, to talk about why he's so angry and that he's expecting this nice ending because Catherine and, and Frederick go off together and they're going to have a baby and all of this. And then she dies in the end and the baby dies and he's so furious. So, um, that his character obviously didn't see the foreshadowing that this sentence brings. But when you go back after you know it all, then you see that. One of the things that, that characterizes this sentence is that, as you said, there's a semicolon. It also took you quite a long time to read it. It's a long, complex sentence. This is 1929. And when you think of something that's Hemingway-esque, a lot of times that's thought of as, you know, tough, terse prose, simple declarative sentences, but what I'm getting here, I and mean, this is something that's, um, the content might be Hemingway-esque, but, it, but the style may not normally be associated with his writing. Is that, is that fair? Oh, I think it's absolutely fair. And when I think of his writing and when we all do, I mean, we all think short, concise, repertorial, right. journalistic sentences, just the facts laid down uh, for us. And um, the, no emotion, you know, he's not trying to sway us as a writer, but, but really the kernel, um, is in that sentence for those, those things. He is being factual. This is, I'm, I'm reporting these things, listing what they're carrying and so forth. But, um, in particular, the use of the word gone gone with child. They, uh, they, he compares the soldiers to uh, being gone with child. And then, of course, we know at the end, Catherine is gone with child. Um, so it is a complicated sentence. And I tried to find a simple sentence, typical Hemingway sentence, that I thought was the one true sentence where you've got it all there. And um, to give you an example of, of the, the problem with that, again, this is from A Farewell to Arms. Uh, the last paragraph in the in the opening chapter. At the start of the winter came the permanent rain, and with the rain came the cholera. There's a, a simple declarative sentence. But what's missing from that sentence is what's really important, the second sentence. But it was checked, and in the end, only 7,000 died of it in the army. 
you can't read the second sentence because the it isn't defined. We don't know what the it is, it's cholera. But you can't read the first sentence without the second sentence um, to know the power of the word only. Um, and so most of the declarative, short declarative sentences that are Hemingway style, I found that to be true, that you needed either the sentence before it or the sentence after it to impact the power of that concise sentence. It has a, an accumulative power right. as, you, as you read it. Going back to your, your original sentence, um, yeah, and to know that the cholera passage is only a couple paragraphs later, he really did a, a magnificent job with this first chapter of A Feral of Arms. Um, one of the things that I noticed when you, when you, even hearing you read it, when you said six months gone with child, it's almost as if the, all the prepositional phrases in that sentence, uh, all the setting, all the images that he creates, and then it ends with gone with child. And it's almost a rhythmically perfect, as well as a kind of a surprise ending to that, to that sentence. There's almost a mini narrative in that, in that entire sentence. Who would ever pair soldiers marching to a woman gone with child? Right. You know, it's, it's just an odd um, pairing and, and powerful because of the oddness of it. Yeah, and gone with child, does Hemingway ever use that phrase ever? In any other in any other place, not not that I not, not, not I know. That, yeah, not that that uh, that I know of either. And it's it's an unusual phrase, not a phrase we normally uh, describe. I looked it up because I you know it is unusual and it seems to be a British idiom. Um, oh. And he, I mean, we know in in um, in our time, uh, you know, he has some phrases and words that are British in nature, and and so. Uh, that still seems to be seeping into his writing, but it's particularly powerful here. It's a much better choice of words here. I mean, the, the power of just that word gone is wonderful. So, and what we were saying about the, the prepositions, how stacked up on top of each other in this, so we have over the river, um, on the mountain, on the road, in their capes, and just over and over, he seems very comfortable in establishing the illustration of that scene, with uh, with those uh, with that combination of prepositional phrases, and then the way the sentence ends, it ends with I haven't counted. I probably I probably should have with a whole bunch of monosyllables. Right. right on the road, marched as though they were six months gone with child, just one right one right after the other, and you, you wouldn't find that in. Uh, too many other writers. Actually, Gail, uh, speaking of that, I wonder if this, uh, you know, the credo that Hemingway said, you know, one true sentence, if you think that there was something about studying Hemingway that lends itself to the notion of one true sentence that maybe wouldn't be as fruitful with Edith Wharton or F. Scott Fitzgerald, or could you, you think you might be able to study any artist in, in such a atomistic way? The idea that he's he's looking for the simple wordage that explains the deep concept, um, you know, and and we we have the contrast of Hemingway and Faulkner, you know, where you might have a page and a half sentence with all of its its uh, complexity, um, and and Hemingway, you know, I think about why Hemingway is so popular, and uh, I know in our society we have a lot of 
um, international people more so than I think in some other societies because I think he translates well because the sentences are yeah. easy to read but complex and um, I, I think maybe he's not unique but he's certainly uh, one that so many writers that came after him uh, talk about as being the model for that they don't use the phrase one true sentence, but that, that and, and I might use the, the um, phrase one true emotion, that he also, that sentence then becomes the um, sort of the objective correlative, uh, to kind of use that in a weird way, for the emotion, that the one true emotion. Uh, and in this novel, Doom, you know, the, the, the sense of uh, humanity's being doomed with this war and, and uh, the circumstance that, that he's describing. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. So when he says in A Movable Feast, um, all you have to do is write one true sentence, and he's kind of coaching himself as a, mm -hmm. as a writer. He remembers him, uh, coaching himself as a young writer. Um, I wonder if that's, uh, that's an, uh, an ethic, an uh, artistic ethic, that you can see applying to Hemingway uh, as opposed to maybe some, of, maybe some of the other writers. Like when he says one true sentence, uh, does he mean, well, when you say like true emotion or true sentence, what is true in the way that you think Hemingway is putting it? Well, as I, as I said, I think it's, it's true emotionally uh, because... True like it reson will resonate to readers or true like it actually happened or where is the... No, I don't think true as it actually happened. I mean, you know, most writers say this is fiction, you know, but I think he means true to human circumstance. That that this resonates with anyone. I mean, you don't have to be a soldier. You don't have to um, have someone die in um, childbirth to to feel the poignancy of what he's sharing. And this is, you know, this is the response that, that the character in the film uh, had, you know, it wasn't something that he went through personally, but he was going through his own personal losses and, and grief. And so it, it resonated uh, with him. And so I, for me, that's what, that's what I read one true sentence to mean, one that resonates with you for whatever reason. That's yeah, um, and also in a movable feast, the sentence, like the passage where he's talking about one true sentence, he says something like, "It was easy to to write one true sentence because there's always something that I had seen or that I had heard that someone someone said or that it had happened." And so, that what you're what you're mentioning is that is that line that really seems to fascinate people about Hemingway more than anybody else, which is the dividing line between his biogra biography, what, mm -hmm. what happened, and what he did with it, right? And I think A Farewell mm -hmm. to Arms is probably the, the one, maybe the most interesting case study, maybe Sun Also Rises too, about uh, what, what in 1929 Hemingway is remembering from 10 years earlier 
that he's drawing from that he's drawing from that. So how much of Hemingway is in this sentence and how much of Hemingway is in the novel? Right. And then uh, then uh, alternately, um, how much is universal and not Hemingway? But, um, you know, why are we still relating to uh, a, a war novel from World War One? We're relating to it because of the of the trauma of loss, a world turned upside down, which many of us are, you know, currently being a lot more able to to relate to as well. You know, the idea that uh, there are universal emotions and feelings that are not tied to um, situational experience. Right, and so uh, especially when you mentioned that the bit about the cholera uh, would seem to be a very applicable uh, thing to to what we're going through. To what we're going through now. So you said that the the novel A Farewell to Arms is sort of universally applicable. It's not only a World War One novel. It's right. it's not out of date. You could teach it, or you could read it, or you could write about it. And is it that sense of trauma and loss, or what else is there in A Farewell to Arms that makes it a relevant novel in the twenty first century? Well, you, you know what we just said—that really we we are in a current war, very different kind of war. But it's also a novel about love and loss. Yeah. Love and loss are never going to go out of fashion in terms of a topic for for f- books or for film. It's a novel about learning to to live in it, to deal with whatever it is that is um, maybe undefinable or or not able to be pinned down or changes from moment to moment or from this time in your life to another time. Um, it, is, it is a universal novel if you look at, at the trueness of the sentences, the trueness of the emotion and the life's experiences that it, it relates to, not, not specific to World War I or to Frederick Henry and Catherine Barclay, but, but uh, overlapping what circumstances um, we all experience in various different ways but but it is it is one that that um, we can relate to as human beings with with that answer in mind I'm wondering if um, in the arc of Hemingway's career if there's something about a farewell to arms like how would you position it along with Hemingway's other novels uh, let's say the Sun also rises which came before it uh, some of his minor novels, or even For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, would you say that the response that you just made about Hemingway universalizing th- his own personal mm-hmm. emotions and making it forever relevant, is that true with much of Hemingway's work or all of Hemingway's work? Or is there something about A Farewell to Arms that, to you, rises above uh, all of the others? Well, that's a good question, because actually, I, I don't teach A Farewell to Arms very often. I teach Sun Also Rises uh, much more often. Um, but the sentence that really just first came to mind to me when you asked, uh, asked me to find a one true sentence example was this one, because it is so packed with, with imagery and um, I think, you know, encapsulates the novel in ways that I don't, I, I didn't see with others. I, I love In Our Time, and, and um, 
I think that it's an, it's an amazing collection. I teach Sun Also Rises more often. But, but this sentence just for, you know, I kept trying to go away from it, find something else. It was the first one to come to me and, and ultimately uh, I had to come back to it because I, I do find it so powerful. The imagery and the, the, the tone, the, the mood, uh, the way it foreshadows the entire novel, whether, whether he knew that at the time he was writing it, but let's say he did, we'll, we'll assume he did, but, but if he didn't, um, it's, it's, he brilliantly, intuitively um, foreshadowed where he was going to go. Uh, before I ask you, Gail, to read the sentence again, I'll just, you're, I, I'm curious why you find the sun also rises uh, more teachable in the 21st century or these days than A Farewell to Arms is. Uh, do you find that there's something that students respond to with The Sun Also Rises? Well, I think, I think The Sun Also Rises, you can get into the expatriate, um, you can get into that, that lifestyle and, and how um, thoughts changed about, philosophical thoughts about the world and where we were. Because The Farewell Arms is set before the war ends and The Sun Also Rises is after. And uh, you know, I, I I find it more engaging to talk about that than to talk about you, you know when you teach farewell to arms, students want to talk about the you know the the war experience and and the love relationship and and the death of Catherine and the baby and the sun also rises opens itself up to a, a broader conversation. Plus, you don't want people reacting to a farewell to arms the way the guy in the movie <laughs> did, and that right. would be no a big defeat. You picked such a a powerful sentence and uh, you unpacked it for us beautifully. Could you read it for us just one more time, Gail? Sure. There were mists over the river and clouds on the mountain and the trucks splashed mud on the road and the troops were muddy and wet in their capes. Their rifles were wet and under their capes, the two leather cartridge boxes on the front of the belts, gray leather boxes heavy with the packs of clips of thin, long 6.5 millimeter cartridges bulged forward under the capes so that the men passing on the road marched as though they were six months gone with child. That's fantastic. Gail, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast and playing One True Sentence with us. And thank you again for asking me to do so. It was great fun. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at One True Pod. That's the number One True Pod. Email us at One True Pod at gmail.com or leave us a message at 321 209 1345. Our show is a production of the Hemingway Society and is supported by the University of Evansville and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,